Are you willing to examine the traditions and doctrines that you trust in for your eternal salvation? Welcome to the Great Deception Podcast. I am Don Britton and I will be your host. I will be comparing the modern traditions and doctrines of American Christianity with what the scriptures actually say. You may be shocked to find out that much of what is commonly believed in American Christianity today is nothing more than myths handed down to us by men. So please join me now with an open mind. Welcome back to another Great Deception podcast. Recently, I was listening to a morning program on Moody Radio. It was a local morning show here in Chattanooga, uh, Tennessee, near where I live. There was a DJ named Tom who was encouraging anyone who was listening to give his heart to Jesus, that is, if he hadn't been already saved. He did a short explanation of what he called the gospel and offered a quick and easy salvation method to anyone who was listening. Tom explained that if anyone needed to be saved, that all they had to do was just say, I do, in response to his simple message. Tom then asked anyone who had received his message to write in and tell him they had said, I do, so he could know about their salvation. I'm telling you, this was very disturbing to me. I couldn't believe, well, I guess I could believe, but I've never even heard anybody bring the salvation message down to just the response being, I do. I mean, that's, it's so misleading. What was disturbing to me is how misleading it was to tell somebody that they're saved because they only said, I do. I've been in meetings where the audience was given the short version, and I call it the short version because the gospel has been so reduced down to nothing anymore. Like I said, I've been in meetings where the audience was given the short version of the gospel and was told that if anyone there wasn't saved yet, to just raise their hand and get that settled quickly. And then they could move on to whatever business they had at hand. In other words, just raise your hand, accept Christ, and you'll be saved. And of course, the the uh, suggestion is that once you're saved, you're going to heaven. It doesn't really matter anymore what you do. You're just going to heaven. I've also seen it made easier than even raising your hand in some meetings by just telling someone just to raise one finger. Just raise a finger. I mean, here's what's more amazing is that the speaker would usually make sure everyone's head was bowed so that the person raising a hand or even just a finger would not be put on the spot. Oh no, oh no. We'd never want anybody to be put on the spot by making a, uh, giving his heart to Jesus. No, we need them to keep that secret. We'd never want anyone to have to make a public profession to the Lord to suffer any embarrassment we wouldn't want them to suffer any embarrassment about becoming a christian would we oh no that'd be a shame that someone would actually let anybody know that they're giving their life to the lord i mean this is ridiculous this hand or finger trick is even easier than just praying a sinner's prayer and by the way a sinner's prayer is itself is not biblical nor is it useful in bringing anyone about a changed life in other words Bringing someone to the Lord is not done through a sinner's prayer. That's another deception. It's like a finger raising or hand raising, except now it's just using some words. But this thing about the I do thing is a brand new one to me. It's even worse than the raised hand or the lifted finger or the sinner's prayer for salvation, even though none of them require much of anything from a person. 
But this is even worse. I mean, this guy made it so, all you got to do is say, I do. He, he was talking about what he called the gospel. It was like a, like a 20 second thing that he presented. And then all you had to do was say, I do. And when you say, I do, you're supposedly saved. And then there's this other method that bothers me too. It's the one where you just ask Jesus into your heart method for salvation. You know, just ask Jesus in your heart. You've heard that said before. Well, just ask Jesus in your heart. Just accept Christ. Just accept Jesus and then you're saved. But again, I ask this question. Where in the Bible did anyone ever say that or do that? I don't see anything like that anywhere in the Bible. And then if you read the story, and there's so many, you know, I could take all day here, but if you read the story in Matthew 19 about the rich young man, some call it the rich young ruler, they came, he came up to Jesus. He was very wealthy, but he was a good moral man. He came up to Jesus and said, what must I do? He said, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? And so Jesus, you know, notice this, Jesus did not tell this rich young man, just raise your hand or even just lift me a finger and you're saved. Oh, no, he didn't say that. Or he certainly didn't say, well, if you just say, I do, you'll be saved. I mean, you know, that sounds kind of silly to say that, but, you know, that's what men are doing today. No, of course he didn't do that. Nor did Jesus tell the rich young man to just ask him into his heart. I mean, can you see Jesus there? This guy's coming up to him and saying, what must I do to have life? And Jesus is saying, just ask me into your heart and you'll be saved. Well, that's silly. And Jesus certainly did not have this man to repeat some words called a sinner's prayer in order to be saved. This is nonsense. I mean, can you see what I'm saying? See how silly and how ridiculous all this sounds when you say it like that? No, it is silly. It's ridiculous. And yet these methods are commonly used all over America today in American Christianity, and they're used to tell people that they're being saved and they're actually deceiving people. They're deceiving people into thinking that they're being saved when they, in fact they are not being saved by these methods. So, but what did Jesus actually tell the rich young man to do? Well, if you go back and read it, Jesus was saying, keep the commandments of God. And of course, he was using the commandments in a moral sense, not in a legal sense, like keeping the letter of the law. He was talking about heart issues. And so not only did he tell him to keep the commandments in the moral sense, but he told him also to give up his wealth and give to the poor and then and come and follow, then, then to come and follow Jesus. Well, in other words, you know what Jesus was telling him? It's going to cost you your life. You're going to have to have, you're going to have to have a complete life change and a complete heart change in order to follow me. Now, now remember, this man was a good moral man. He had kept all the moral, the outward things about the law. He'd kept the, you know, the, the letter of the law, so to speak. And, and Jesus didn't argue with him that he hadn't. But see, this man, if he was, if he, this man came to any church in America today, he'd had money. He was a good moral man, so to speak. He would have been welcomed in any church. He would have been, he would have been brought in. He would have probably been put into a, a teaching position or given a, a leadership position in the church and would have been called a wonderful Christian because he was a good moral man and he had some money. Of course, 
Pastors get really excited when somebody comes to their church that has a little bit of money. They get all excited about that. And of course, that's another story, and I'm not going to go into that today. But I want to get back to this point. For decades, American Christian pastors, and I'm going to say Christian with a quote here, quote unquote Christian pastors, they have been watering down the gospel more and more to make it an easy believism message rather than calling sinners to repentance and to a life-changing commitment to God. From ancient times, the scriptures have instructed men everywhere to seek God earnestly in order to find him. Men have been told from the beginning to be broken for their sins and to come to the Lord in humility and brokenness and to seek him in repentance and to do so with a heart change. And they had to do this in order to find him and to be saved. This understanding and this practice was mostly followed until the late 1800s. Now I'm going to give you a little bit of history here. Before that time, men who preached the gospel normally understood and normally explained to the seeker that he was not, they did not tell the seeker he was saved because he came forward or because he was seeking God. But they did tell the seeker to earnestly seek God until he was reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit. Before, back in those days, it was usually understood that the process could take some time. You know, it might take a little while. This this person who, who was under conviction, it might take him a little while before he actually gave his life to God, before he really gave it up. It might take a, a, a few minutes, a few hours, and in some cases, maybe even days or even longer before somebody was really ready to give their life up to God. They had to consider, like Jesus said one time, a man should consider the cost. What's it going to cost you? But this guy named Billy Sunday, who came along in the early 1900s, he changed all of this. And he reduced this very important time of repentance and seeking God. He, he reduced it to a just come forward and shake Billy Sunday's hand. And then he told whoever did this, that is, whoever came forward in his meeting, and shook his hand, that they were saved. Well, that was the first time anybody ever did anything like that. Billy Sunday had a referral card with a printed commitment that was to be signed by the new convert, the one who now supposedly is saved because he shook Billy Sunday's hand. And then that card was to be sent to a pastor for follow-up. Follow -up. This printed commitment on the referral card was later taken and made into the first ever thought of, ever done, ever used sinner's prayer. So after this, when people came forward to receive Jesus, they were taken into a room for counseling to see if they were really sincere. This was a practice that began to be developed after the Billy Sunday uh, referral card was used. Well, it sort of took off. If the counselor decided that this person was really sincere, then they were led into a simple sinner's prayer. And they were told, that is, the convert was told that they were now saved and they were born again. Well, this began to take, take off. Other ministers began to use this method more and more during the early 1900s because, you know, it made it easier. It shortened the salvation process. It, it, took, it took away from having to seek God and come to repentance and conviction of sin and to have a, you know, until one was ready to give his life totally to God, 
it was changed from all of that into a quick and easy salvation method in, or, in order to save preachers a lot of time and effort so they could make instant converts. And then in the 1950s, Billy Graham, and you know he had all these big meetings, Billy Graham continued with this same method and had people to come forward to receive Jesus would have and would have them go into rooms with counselors and be led in a sinner's prayer. Again, this is all a brand new thing. Never happened in the history of God's people before. But as the crowds grew in number and they got bigger and bigger with Billy Graham's crusades, he, Billy Graham eliminated the counseling process at some point. He eliminated it altogether and just gathered the crowds up front. And then Billy Graham himself prayed the sinner's prayer for the masses of people that came forward. And then Billy Graham told them that they were all saved and that they all had eternal life. Now, as a result of this, there was no longer any counseling, nor was there any follow-up with these people, nor there was any discipling of these people. And these people were supposedly new converts, but nobody was working with them. It was later reported through some research that was done that most all of those converts fell away and never amounted to anything. Yet most of them probably thought that they were going to heaven because men like Billy Graham and other preachers and pastors told them that they were saved and that they had eternal life, even though virtually none of the biblical requirements to be saved were actually met. We're told today by so many preachers and teachers that Jesus has done everything for you and that you don't have to do anything to be saved except just believe in Jesus and accept him. I even saw a guy on TV. I turned on the TV one day and there was a local preacher here in the Chattanooga area who was preaching and he said Jesus had done everything for you and he said you did not even have to repent to be saved nor did you have to forgive anyone if you had a grudge or you hated or you had hated someone or you had bitterness towards someone. He said that he even went so far as to say all those things that Jesus said about that didn't count for us, that you could just take your Bible and you could omit all the words of Jesus and all the prophets before that and just start where Paul was preaching grace and that all you had to do to be saved was just to accept Christ in your mind and that somehow this false grace that he was preaching would save you. You didn't have to repent of sin. You didn't have to forgive anybody. You didn't have to do anything Jesus said because he said Jesus was just speaking under the law. I mean, this is the most absurd thing I've ever heard before. But it goes along with that theory now that Jesus has done everything for you and there's nothing you have to do yourself in order to be saved. Of course, if you read the Bible, there's a lot of things you have to do, and I don't have time to list them all. But of course, one of them is you have to believe. Another one is you have to obey. Another is you have to repent of sin and so forth. But I, want to, I just want to remind you what Jesus said, though. Here's what he said in Matthew 7. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. In other words, what he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. In other words, just praying or saying some words, just speaking words. Not everyone who just speaks some words, he's saying to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. In other words, you have to do something. 
And that doing something is you have to obey God. You have to obey his word. You have to follow him with a whole heart. There's so many things he said that counts along with our salvation that, that we must do. And I've said this before. God will only do his part and we have to do our part as well. God won't do our part for us and we can't do his part ourselves. So it takes us working with God, cooperating with God, obeying God and following God for salvation to actually work. It's a two-part involvement. That's what covenant is. Covenant is where two people come together in an agreement and they both do what they agreed to do. John the Baptist, for an example, when he came along, he was saying to everyone, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. What does it mean to repent? It means to turn away from your sin and turn towards God at the same time. That's a complete turning of direction. And so John Baptist went on to say, he said, and the ax is already laid at the root of every tree and every tree that doesn't bear fruit in keeping with repentance is cut down and thrown in the fire. So that's a pretty serious thing. Now, Jesus also spoke about what's required for salvation. In Luke 24, he says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. So repentance was required for forgiveness. And of course, without forgiveness, there is no salvation. So there's something that we must do is we must repent of our sins. That means to turn from them, to give them up and to turn to the Lord with a whole heart. Jesus also in Luke chapter nine said this, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Well, there's another requirement. You, you, if you're going to come after Jesus, you have to deny yourself of what? You have to deny yourself of worldly desires, of sin, of lust, of greed, of hate, of anger, all the things of the flesh. You have to deny yourself of the fleshly ways and then take up his cross daily and follow me, Jesus said. Okay, what's the cross? The cross is not Jesus's cross. Everybody talks about Jesus's cross the cross that Jesus died on, but he's talking about the one that you and I have to die on, the one that we have to carry. We take up our own cross. When we deny ourselves and we suffer, when we suffer to cease from sin, when we're rejected by others because of our faith, we have to carry our cross too. Jesus said in one place, if they've hated me, they're going to hate you. Who's going to hate you? The world's going to hate you. And honestly, religious people are going to hate you when you start telling the truth, when you start walking in the truth and walking in the light and not following man-made religion, you're going to have some persecution. And Jesus goes on to say in the next verse, in verse 24 of Luke 9, he says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. See, that's what happened to the rich young man. He was wanting to save his life. He didn't want to give up his wealth. He didn't want to give up his lifestyle. He didn't want to give up anything. He just wanted salvation free and clear without anything that he had to give up. But Jesus said, but whoever loses his life, for my sake, he is the one who will save it. And also, the Lord speaking in Revelation 3, verse 5, he said, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So there's another requirement. We just saw in, the, in Luke 9 where, the, one of the requirements that we must do is deny ourselves 
Another one was, we must take up our cross daily and follow him. Another was, we must give up our life in order to lose it, in, in order to save it, I should say. We must lose our life in order to save it. And now he's saying, he who overcomes. So we must overcome. That's something that we must do. God's not going to overcome for us. We must overcome like he did. We're supposed to follow in his footsteps. We're supposed to overcome like he did. He overcame the world, the devil, the flesh, and everything else that came at him. We must do the same thing. And he says, the one who overcomes will be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, which indicates that if you don't overcome, it doesn't matter when you got saved, what kind of faith you had, if you don't overcome, he's saying right there, your name could be erased from the book of life. So that's a serious matter. Now, another thing that Jesus said that's required, and again, I'm just pointing out some things here. It's more than just saying I do. It's more than just praying a sinner's prayer. It's more than just lifting up a hand or raising a finger. He said in John chapter 15, every branch in me. Now, this is someone now that's in Christ. He's the vine. We're the branches, okay? If we're in Christ, we're saved, right? We're, we're initially saved. We're in Christ. But here's the problem. Every branch in me, he says, that in other words, in Christ, that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Well, there's a requirement. We can't just accept Christ. We must bear fruit. We can't just say, I, I want to be saved. We must bear fruit. We're required to bear fruit. And he goes on to say in verse six of John 15, he says, if anyone does not abide in me, abide means to continue, to stay, to endure, to overcome, to, to, to walk holy and all those kinds of things. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. In other words, he's cut off from the vine. He's thrown away. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they're burned. So that's what happens to those people in Christ. And that's where 99% of the American Christian church is today. They say they're in Christ. They come to God, but they never bear fruit. Life never changes. They just now go to church. They just now do the religious stuff. But the hearts never change. That's why I say the hearts never change. The reason I say that is because the research is done by the Barner Group and by others proves that the church is just as full of sin as the world is. There's just as much adultery in the church as there is outside the church. There's just as much fornication, homosexuality, and pornography in the church. Even the pastors are in pornography. It's almost daily that I read a story about a pastor who's had a moral failure or who, who has took and stolen money from the church or the organization. You know, it happens all the time because pastors themselves are like the blind leading the blind. And when they have this easy believism gospel, this one that says that grace covers all sins, no matter what you do, they actually start believing the lie themselves and they start living in sin and they start doing the things that everybody else is doing. And if the pastors are doing it and they're not addressing the sin in the church, why won't the church be in sin? People go to church, sing the songs, oh, I have loved Jesus, go right out and commit adultery, go home and get in pornography. Happens all the time, everywhere, all across America. So we must bear fruit. That's a requirement. Don't bear fruit, you get cut off and thrown in the fire. So here's the question I have for you today. Whatever happened to the gospel of repentance from sin for forgiveness? Whatever happened to that gospel? I see these 
these flyers and tracks passed around that people put out at the gas stations and wherever, restaurants. I watch so-called Christian TV. Nothing said about repentance for forgiveness. Nothing said that we have to repent of sin for forgiveness. That's what I'm trying to say. What we hear is that there's forgiveness, unconditional forgiveness, without any repentance. Whatever happened to the gospel of self-denial, the one that says you must deny yourself and take up your own cross before you can even begin to follow Jesus. Whatever happened to that gospel? Whatever happened to the gospel of having to overcome, lest your name would be erased from the book of life? Who preaches that? What happened to that gospel? And whatever happened to the gospel of anyone having to bear fruit in order to remain in Christ, or you would be cut off from the vine and cast in the fire? Whatever happened to that gospel? Whatever happened to the gospel of having to endure to the end in order to be saved? Jesus said in Matthew 7, he said, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. That word many in the Greek actually means multitude upon multitude. And then in verse 14, he says, For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Okay. First of all, the, the meanings of the small and the narrow are very similar meanings, which means the way of suffering, persecution, the way of the cross, the way of difficulty, the way of pain. That's the way to life. And the, and the few are a tiny amount in the Greek. It's a tiny, tiny amount. It means almost, it means like very, very tiny amount, not, not millions and millions of Baptists and millions and millions of Catholics and millions and millions of Lutherans and Presbyterians and millions and millions of Pentecostals and all that. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about just a very few who actually know him and belong to him and that go the narrow way. Paul himself warned about another gospel. Paul said in 2 Corinthians eleven four, he said, for if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached or you receive a different spirit which you've not received, that is from us, he's saying, or a different gospel, which you've not accepted, you bear it beautifully. In other words, there's different gospels, there's different spirits, and there's different messages being preached. That's why we have so many denominations. They all have a different gospel, and they all have a different Jesus. The Baptist Jesus is not the same as the Catholic Jesus. Obviously, you can see that. The spirits are totally different. Then you got your Pentecostals, then you got your Lutherans, then you got your Methodists, then you got, you know, it goes on and on and on. And then you got divisions of all those into more divisions, into more divisions. And then you got independence and then you got non-denominationals and it goes on and on and on. And I've said before, there's a thousand denominations and a hundred ways to heaven. So there's, there's all these different spirits and different gospels and different Jesuses all floating around. But there's really only one gospel and there's really only one Jesus and there's really only one salvation. So we need to be sure we're on the right one. And then... Paul wrote in Galatians chapter one, he said, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Well, we, if you go to Titus, you know, if you go to Titus 2.11, it says grace has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny all ungodliness, all worldly desires 
and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. So the grace of God is telling us to live holy before God. It's not covering up for sin. It's not excusing sin. It's not forgiving unrepentant sin. That's not what grace does, but that's how it's presented today. It's it, The grace is presented today is a lie. So he goes on to say, for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Well, you think that's happened today? It was already happening back then. I think it's happened a million times over today. But even if we or an angel from heaven, Paul said, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. So that's a pretty serious matter. That means that somebody's being accursed. You know, if there's a thousand denominations and denominations with all these different gospels, you know, somebody's accursed. There's a lot of accursing going on. And guess what? The people that are receiving this gospel, they're also accursed. So this is what I want to ask you today. Which gospel did you receive? Did you receive the Baptist gospel or the Pentecostal gospel or the Catholic gospel or the Lutheran gospel or maybe the Methodist gospel or the United Methodist gospel? On and on. Which one did you receive? Did you receive the gospel that would cost you your life as you knew it before? You know, the one that we just read about, the one that will cost you your sins through repentance, the one that will require you to take up your cross, the one that will require you to give up your life. Is that the gospel that you received? Probably not. If you've been in the normal American Christian church today, you probably never even heard the gospel that require those things yet. That's what's strongly written in the Bible. Or did you receive a different gospel, a false gospel from a false preacher and from a false religious system, from a false denomination, from a false doctrine? What gospel did you receive? Did you receive an easy believism gospel that doesn't require any real life change or heart change, but just somehow to mentally accept Christ in your mind and your heart and somehow you're magically going to be saved without true repentance, without giving up your life, without bearing your cross. What gospel did you receive? Was it a different gospel? I want to ask you this. Think about this. Are you truly born again? It plainly says in 1 John, the one who's born again does not practice sin. It plainly says in 1 John that the it's obvious that the difference between the one who's of God and the one who's of the devil is the one who's of devil of the devil practices sin. The one who's born of God does not practice sin. Are you, you know, the church is full of people practicing sin today. Are you one of them? Are you truly born again? Are you really a new creation? Paul said all those in Christ are a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. Is that really true for you? Do you have a transformed life? I'm talking about when you were born again, you should have been transformed. Your life should have been immediately changed and it should have been changing, ongoing, growing in the grace and knowledge of God all the time, being transformed. Your life should not be anything like it was before. Are you delivered from the power of sin? Are you bearing good fruit in keeping with repentance? Have you been rejected by family and friends for your faith? Have you been persecuted for your faith? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness 
And do you have a healthy fear of the Lord? Those that are born again do. Those that know God do. Those that love God do. You know, where are you at with all of that? If you can't answer yes to the, what I just described as a really true born again person, if not, if you can't answer that, if you're not like that, then maybe you have taken, eat off the, you've eaten off the tree of the false gospel. You have received a false message and a false Jesus. Just think about it. If you have, where's that going to leave you in judgment? Then maybe you need to run to Jesus just as fast as you can and find him before it's too late. I would suggest that you seek him while he still may be found. Run from the American denominational religious system. Run fast from it. Run from the pastor's who give you easy believism. Run from the pastors who tell you that grace has covered all your sins that you've ever done, the ones you'll commit today, and the ones you do in the future. Run from them because they're liars. Run from the pastors who are being paid to tickle your ears and lead you to hell. Run and repent of this false religion and repent of your sins before it's too late. Remember that the true way to life is on a very narrow path it has a very small gate and that only a very few will be able to enter. Are you willing to take the difficult, narrow path that leads to heaven or are you going to stay on the broad and easy road that leads to hell? Thank you for listening to the Great Deception Podcast. You may visit my website at www.christianmyths.org for more information for my blog and for my email address. You can also get my book, The Great Deception of American Christianity Without Christ, on Amazon or on my website. Also on my website, you may download two free chapters of my book. I hope you join me next week as we continue to examine The Great Deception.